You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? Chad, how you think I'm doing? If I had to guess, I'd say you're probably pretty fired up. You know why I'm pretty fired up? We got koozies. Look right here on the table. The people watching the live stream have probably already noticed the product placement. Those people. Oh, who, what? These? These right here? These delightful koozies say come in event podcast on them? The people who are listening on the live stream or the uh, the audio only version of the, of the podcast are going to have to take our word for it, but... We got these delightful co-main event podcast koozies here. Let me show you something. You got co-main event podcast on both sides there, our, our clever little logo. Got the lightning bolt on there. Really make you feel fired up as you're enjoying a cold beverage. Yep. Then you're enjoying your beverage. Uh-huh. You tip it up. Glug, glug, glug. Oh, What you got on the bottom? It says, are you fucking kidding me? Right That's there right, on the bottom. That's right, it does. Right there You're looking the good at me. Koozies. Whew. So it's a big day over yeah. there. Big We're going to have to start getting these in the mail. We got the stickers. Got stickers. We got koozies. Got a, just a huge box full of both of them in the back of my car right now. So we're going to be able to sit here. We're going to be able to enjoy our refreshing beverages. We're going to be able to look good doing it. And the most exciting part, they're going to stay cold. That's right. The whole hour. Our beverages aren't getting warm. I'm not even worried about it. I'm not even going to drink mine. I'm just going <laughs> to let it sit there. <laughs> that'll that'll just, really show people. I'm not worried about yeah. the temperature. That's how not worried I am. That's confidence. Remember when we talked about the giant Grinch? Uh, <laughs> yes, I do. A couple weeks back. I do indeed. Later, a photo of the Grinch surfaced on- online. Yeah. My kids asked to drive by the Grinch every day. It's not really on your way. Nope. That's over <laughs> on the other side of town. I mean, it's, it's over in your neighborhood, so yeah. a lot easier for you to drive by. Me, hard to avoid driving by it. Not so much. In fact, my three-year-old asked me if we could drive by the Grinch this morning when I was taking him to preschool, which is just like not even on the way. We had to have a uh, we had to have words about it. He well, was not impressed when I said we couldn't drive by the Grinch this morning. Let's just say that. Do whatever you do. Do not let him see the lighting display that's on a house like on a cul-de-sac, kind of near me, because. We were kind of driving back from somewhere, and we just saw it, like, down the street, just, like, peered down the darkened street and saw, holy hell, what is going on down there? And my kids were like, we got to, come on, let's go check that out. And it's there's it's not on the way to anywhere, because it's just in a cul-de-sac, and it is out of fucking control. I've never seen anything like it. Wow. I might have to have you draw me a map. Yeah. Well, once your kids see it, though. It's anytime they're in the car and it's anywhere close to sunset and they're like, hey, how about we go 10 minutes out of our way to go look at that Christmas light display? Yeah. And there's a part of me every time that's like, it is pretty dope. I would like, I just don't even know, understand some of the mechanics, like there's moving parts. There's like, I've never seen this before where some of the lights look like exploding fireworks, like in motion. Oh yeah. Those new uh, high tech lights. It's pretty high tech. Yeah, I'm going to have to have you show me where it is, I guess, because uh, just the way you've described it, I'm not going to be able to prevent myself from going to look at yeah. it. I might as well make it a family outing. I'm like, what tech company CEO lives here? <laughs> what state senator lives at this obviously insanely grandiose house? 
Well, Ben, last week we decided we we're going to do No Country for Old Men for the upcoming co-main event podcast book club. We promised this week we would set a date. So I'm going to propose one to you. Okay. Friday, January 11th. Friday, January 11th. It's one month and one day from today. Friday, okay. January 11th. Okay. You're in? I can do that. It's I about, cracked it open last night. That's what we're going to do. Friday, January 11th. You know, you know what to do at this point. If you're out there in listener land, all the little co-maniacs, you can, you can run out, buy yourself a copy of No Country for Old Men, get a paperback, get a hardcover, get a Kindle version, get the audio version, I assume, over on Audible. God, I would love it if you could get Cormac McCarthy himself to read it out loud. He's not going to do that. No, he's not. But man... Maybe we take up a Patreon drive to get Cormac McCarthy to read it. How much do you think it'll cost? A lot. More than we've got. 500 bucks. I'll, ma- I'll, I'll start off low. I'll make him an offer low, and then that way we'll have a little bit of negotiating room. I mean, the worst he could say is no, right? Right. That's all yes. he can do. Yeah. Uh, we're probably going to talk about the movie a little bit, too. We advise that you do both. Read the book, watch the movie, so you don't miss out on any of the subtleties. Though it must be said. If you're the kind of person who is just absolutely not going to sit there and read a book or listen to a book or whatever, and you're like, could I get down with this one without having read any of any form of the book? Could I just watch the movie and still appreciate this book club podcast? I'm forced to admit that the answer is yes. Yeah. This time around, you could probably get away with that. Ben, the uh, co-main event podcast Power Hour rolls on on Fridays exclusively for patrons of our Patreon. Last week, we... uh, we talked about the mess the UFC had made for itself, booking Greg Hardy on the same card as Rachel Ostovich. Yeah. And we also took a delightful trip into a curated afternoon of MMA fight cards that you may want to watch while on a day-long drinking binge during the holidays. Yep. So yeah. if that sounds like it's your scene, you want to know what those choices were, run over to uh, patreon.com, join the co-main event podcast, Patreon, and uh, fire that up, man. You'll find yeah. out exactly what we would watch if we were at the controls. Maybe you didn't even know it was your scene until we started suggesting ideas, until you started thinking about yourself sitting there, you know, maybe a couple few tequilas in you, getting fired up watching George St. Pierre versus Mayhem Miller. Exactly, exactly. Then tell the kids exactly what to do if they want to join the uh, Patreon. Well, Chad, it's pretty easy. All you do, you go to patreon.com slash co-main event. You can sign up there. You can see that we have a number of different tiers available to you there. Uh, You can get down with, you know, friend of the podcast level, acquaintance of the podcast, one of our guys or girls. All the $5 patrons and up are going to get one of these here koozies. All the $1 patrons are going to get a sticker. $5, you get a sticker and the koozie. $10 $10 patrons, they get all that stuff, plus they get access to the monthly Tips for the Well-Rounded Fight Fan newsletter that we sent out. I just saw people appreciating your recommendation of pears, not the fruit, the, the punk band. You're a great band. We got music again this week from our guy, The Fifth Element, a music producer from Fort Worth, Texas. If you like what you hear from him on the podcast, you can check him out over on Twitter at The Fifth Element or Facebook.com slash The Fifth Element or SoundCloud.com slash the Fifth Element Official. And as you guys know by now, that's the word the with an A. The Fifth Element. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. And round number one. Remember this time last week 
when it was Max Holloway's personal health and safety that we were concerned about. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were so young then. And in round number two, after spending nearly all of 2018 bending over backwards, trying to get Valentina Shevchenko as women's flyweight champion, the UFC finally gets its wish. But to what end? And in round number three, in all likelihood, this weekend marks the last ever UFC on Fox event. So what did we learn? All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Josh Montgomery. He writes, you know that 165-pound division that Dana White says no way is it ever coming to the UFC? Well, when that goes the way of uh, women will never fight in the UFC and John Jones will never headline a pay-per-view again, I think my guy Gunnar Nelson is the dark horse candidate to rule that division. Most boots-on-the-ground MMA reporters I follow have said how he is basically lightweight-sized. The extra five pounds, he can, he can cut that... Uh, the extra five pounds... You see, this is tough because there's very little punctuation. Yeah, I, I know that that gives you... A- a hard time sometimes. So the extra five pounds he can cut that monsters such as Usman and Woodley probably can't or won't would serve him and his style very well. What are your thoughts on Gunner? And could the 165 pound division that is no way not ever coming potentially have a king from the north? So uh, we kind of get a double whammy question here from Josh Montgomery, Ben, since uh, Gunner Nelson went out there over the weekend at UFC 231 and just knocked a hole in the face of the other cowboy. Okay, let's talk about that first. Charles Oliveira. That deserves a little bit of discussion. I was thinking about it afterwards because I, you know, like you, we've been watching this sport a long time. Seen a lot of grisly stuff happen in there. A lot of cuts. A lot of blood. As far as just the speed with which a certain amount of blood was produced, I think that this holds a special place. In I mean, maybe not the worst total looking cut resulting from it and maybe maybe not even the most fight affecting cut that we've seen but as far as going from zero to horror movie i don't think i've ever seen it happen this quickly yeah it was very sudden and also in kind of like classic gunner nelson fashion it was sort of nonchalant yeah like maybe you didn't notice at first for the first second or two and then, of course, the UFC broadcast team kind of starts freaking out about all the blood. Well, when, you, when he goes, moves to take his back and he kind of flips him over, you can see it just fly. Like, there's a still image where you can see it like a thick rope of blood just flying off of other cowboys' forehead. Yeah, it got gross in a hurry. Uh, anyway, Gunnar Nelson, as we know, picks up the victory there. Uh, because once he locks in the rear naked choke, the cowboy is tapping. Yeah. He's, he's like, okay. This is a rough day at the office. Yeah. Let's just re- let's go back to the farm and regroup. Yeah. Now I have two reasons to want to get out of here. Yeah. Live to fight another day, basically, is uh, the other Cowboys uh, philosophy at that point. So, yeah, it's an interesting question. Like, what do you do with Gunnar Nelson, a guy who had a ton of hype coming into the UFC, uh, has been a little bit on the back burner here as of late, but definitely gets himself, you know, back to the forefront of the conversation with this grisly victory over Oliveira. I don't know how much time we wanted to debate spend debating the possible advent of 165-pound division. But uh, what to you, Ben, is the ideal scenario for uh, Gunny Nelson here? Are we all just going to keep talking about the 165-pound division indefinitely? 
no matter what the UFC does about it? I think until it becomes a reality. We're going to dream it into existence. We're going to manifest it. Just debate it into existence if such a thing can happen. Because I know how we all like to do the thing where the more Dana White says something is not happening, the more positive we are that it is absolutely happening. And that is based in history. That is based in something. We're not just pulling that out of nowhere. But even this week, he was saying that it's bullshit. There isn't, there's not going to be a 165-pound division. Everybody can stop talking about it. But it does seem like either we just want there to be one, we want to keep talking about it, we, we want a fantasy matchmake, the 165-pound division. I don't know. We won't let it go. I'll be interested to see if it's six months from now and there's still no movement on the UFC or... Are we going to be able to maintain the enthusiasm for that conversation? Just going to keep spitballing potential 165-pound champions and championship matches. Yeah. Maybe create our own rankings. Yeah. There we go. Maybe start just start declaring certain fights to be 165-pound title fights. And as to the question about, okay, could Gunnar Nelson be the guy at 165? I think that there are so many variables. It's really hard to predict exactly who would end up in that division and who would excel there. Because there's a lot of people, I think, who would instantly decide, okay, I'm a 165-pounder now. Either because that's the weight class that would be a really natural fit for them, or because if you make a 165-pound weight class, you're not going to keep 170. Yeah, you got to bump that up to 175. That That would be the only thing that makes sense. And so then there's going to be people going, well, the extra five pounds might be where I get off this train at welterweight. Yeah. And then I got to figure out a way to make 165. And if you do that, maybe you end up with just the same picture at 165. And we're, we're doing the exact same things that we end up doing at welterweight. Yeah. I guess if you look at, at, if you want to make a case for Gunnar Nelson and you could look at his wins and losses and say, you know, Santiago Ponzanibio, Damian Maya and Rick story are all guys uh, who are physical at that 170 pound weight limit. Uh, maybe he does fare better if he gets to go out there with a with a smaller class of opponent. But again, like you said, so many moving pieces there uh, in in terms of what would be a super lightweight or junior welterweight class. Uh, not, Coming up with a name is going to be important. Not the least of which could be the big homie Conor McGregor may want to pitch his tent in the 165-pound division, and he and uh, Gunnar Nelson pretty tight because both of them training from uh, – SBG gym over there in Dublin. So you got to think kind of like maybe if you're on a sports team, but then that sports team signs a new star and he says he wants your number, like you kind (laughs) of got to give it to him. I would think that around the hallowed halls of the SBG gym in Dublin, if Conor McGregor is like, yeah, I want to be the 165 pound champion that Gunnar Nelson would have to be, would have to let that transpire. Have to be a team player on that one. You might have to just let that go down. Yeah. Next question this week comes to us from Slick Williams. He writes, how quick could Tiago Santos become Santos? I'm sorry, become a capital G guy at 205 pounds. Only roadblock I could think of is John Jones, to which I'd counter. Just wait until he does a whole bowl of cocaine and T-bones a school bus. Shaboom. You're all. <laughs> is that the noise it makes when you T-bone a school bus? You're all of a sudden in a title fight versus Anthony Smith. Hashtag would watch. Uh, so Tiago Santos, Ben just went out there and had a goddamn slugfest with Jimmy Manoa. You know, I liked when uh, John Anik was referring to this one as strategically placed uh, as the pay-per-view opener. Mm-hmm. Ain't that the truth? And these guys did exactly what you got to be hoping that they'll do. They go out there, the very first exchange of the fight, they meet in the center of the cage, 
and your boy the hammer goes out there and wobbles Jimmy Manoa, and it looks like, oh boy, this could be over quickly. I don't know how it made it out of the first round. Credit to Jimmy Manoa on this one, actually, because he got hurt early, got hurt a couple times, and he came back, came back and uh, had the hammer looking a little wobbly later in the round. These two guys poured a whole lot of living into five minutes and 41 seconds out there. Back and forth, both guys get wobbled, both guys are getting to show their stuff on the feet. Ultimately, uh, Tiago Santos emerges with the with the KO victory. You know what I, I kind of like about Tiago Santos's approach? I feel like it's almost a throwback MMA approach where it's like, I'm just going to go out there and throw as hard as I can and let the chips fall where they may. Yeah. It's, I mean, I know that the guy otherwise is skilled, but it's just sort of like kind of like an old school approach. Just like no one can handle my power and that's just what I'm going to do. Have I told you the conspiracy theory that I'm starting? I would love to hear it. I'm starting a conspiracy theory that uh, Tiago Santos does not know how to throw a jab. That he never learned. Okay, what's the conspiracy? That he was prevented from learning? Uh, part of the conspiracy is that maybe they, his trainers, when they started out coaching him, were like, this would be fun. Let's just see. Let's just see what happens if you make a guy believe that the only kind of strikes you're even allowed to throw are power strikes. Yeah. And let's see how, how far. And it just got out of hand. Like it got to a point, kind of like the point where, you know, you don't know somebody's name, but then you realize you've known them too long. You can't ask now. Yeah. Because it seems ridiculous. They were like, well, shit, he's in the UFC. We can't tell him about the existence of the jab now. That's an interesting uh, hypothesis on your part. And I would say maybe as supporting evidence is the fact that Jimmy Manoa did hurt him with a jab in this fight. And it was kind of like... Manoa hit him with the jab, and maybe Tiago Santos was like, what the fuck was that? Did he just invent a new strike? And then he went back to his corner, and he's like, I don't know what that was. Something <laughs> hit me, and they were like, we don't know either, Tiago. <laughs> we'll have to get home and review the tape. But for now, let's just focus on hooks, uppercuts, you know, the, all the strikes that are known to, to be in existence. That's right. <laughs> what do we think about uh, Tiago Santos's potential in the light heavyweight division? He's got two wins in a row now. Uh, the first one over your boy. Eric Anders, and then now uh, over Jimmy Manuel, both by stoppage, of course, because that's uh, essentially that's how what you do. Tiago Santos is going to win fights. But uh, as we have said before, 205 pounds kind of needs everyone it can get. Kind of taking a big a big tent approach up there at 205 right now. Whoever wants to come on in uh, can can throw their hat in the ring. But you know he's a big guy, six two. Uh, clearly has the the physicality to make it at that weight class. What do you think, Ben, about uh, Tiago Santos choosing to stick it out at light heavyweight rather than um, go back down to middleweight? Well, obviously it's working so far, and we keep talking about Anthony Smith having a great time at light heavyweight after going up. He's got a win over Anthony Smith at middleweight. Obviously, I think when you see a fighter like this, the tendency is to be like, okay, this is fun and all. We're all having a good time, but this is only going to get you so far. And so we're always waiting for you to run into somebody who can just deal with your constant aggression, power striking approach to MMA and think that, all right, it ought to be, if not easy to beat, it ought to be easy to game plan for at least because you know what he's going to do every single time. And yet, you know, you can get pretty far, I think, when you have the physical skills that this guy does. So uh, I think that we're all going to keep playing the game where we wait to see just how far he can go with that. But at light heavyweight right now, especially in the... The very possible school bus T-boning hypothetical kind of future there? Who knows, man? You tell me nine months from now, 
that the hammer is in a light heavyweight title fight. I could believe that. It says on his Wikipedia page that he used to fight a welterweight. Come on. What life was that in? Get out of here. Next question this week comes to us from James Hawkins, who writes, So Jessica I managed to edge out a split decision win against number three ranked women's flyweight Caitlin, Caitlin Chikogi, Chikogian. Chikogian. Nailed Blonde it. fighter. Nailed it. Declare what color underwear she was wearing. Plead for a title shot. Apologize for using profanity, profanity that may have been offensive in the 1800s. And kind of hashtag <laughs> me too, Joe Rogan. While asking to be on his podcast, what should the UFC do next with Sir Nigel's favorite tweeter? Is she ready to face Chevy Chanks, or was her performance not impressive enough? Well, huh, okay. Here's the thing, man. Valentina Shevchenko got to fight somebody. She does got to fight somebody. As we'll talk about later in the show, uh, Jessica I's been around a while. She's three fight win streak at that division. She's been a, a known commodity for a while. Now she's she's got a trio of wins in a row. And yet, when you look at those wins, when you look at those actual performances, I don't know that you come away going, yeah, this title contender all over it. None of them really stand out as being, okay, that was super impressive. She just blew that person away, and she is ready for a huge step up in competition. None of them feel that way. All three of them are decisions, and the last, or two of the last three are both split decisions. Uh, Jessica I... Then the last time Jessica I was in a fight that ended short of the distance was November of 2014. And that's the one where Leslie Smith's ear got all gnarled up, right? Yes. And it was stopped because, like, the doctor stopped it. Right. Prior to that, it looks like a technical submission due to standing arm triangle choke at Bellator 83 over uh, Zoila Frausto. Oh, wow. December 7th. 2012. Okay, but as you said... So she's going to use all the time she's got. Let's just say that. Yeah, I'm going to make sure that uh, you get all your TV time in. I can appreciate that. Um, The thing here is, though, like you said, not only does Valentina Shevchenko got to fight somebody, but Jessica I is doing a lot with what she has to work with as far as self-promotion. Oh, yeah. Because after every time she wins, she's going to get on the mic and talk... Like, hell yeah, everybody give me my due. Everybody give me my title shot. Like, now is my time. And it's like, that can kind of win people over or can at least create enough of a something that people want to see it if there are no better options. Like, there's not like there's somebody else out there where people are like, okay, calm down, Jessica. I, we're all more excited for this matchup for Valentina Shevchenko. That, that thing's not out there. Right. So if you can make yourself into a thing one way or another, maybe it works. Yeah, and not to spoil the conversation that we are fixing to have about Valentina Shevchenko coming up here, but I would wager that whether or not Jessica I is able to score a an immediate matchup against Valentina Shevchenko may, in fact, have a lot to do with what the UFC wants to do with Valentina Shevchenko. Yeah, we'll talk about it coming up. Uh, they took a uh, they went through a lot to get the 125 pound women's title around her waist. If they want to build her up a little bit, I don't know. Maybe Jessica is not the worst opponent. What do you think? You think she gets on Joe Rogan's podcast? Because that that could lead to some interesting and perhaps baffling conversation. I mean, Joe Rogan does a podcast like literally every hour of every day. <laughs> so right? you're saying he needs some guests? I'm, I'm saying like he must have copious guest needs. 
I know he always manages to fill them, and he's always up around the top of the iTunes charts. But I mean, it's not on. It wouldn't be. It wouldn't totally shock me, right? Prediction: Jessica I goes on Joe Rogan's podcast. He asks her if she's ever done MDMA. Her she gives an honest answer, and yet none of us quite understand whether the answer is yes or no. So, like, kind of like an Elon Musk performance, but perhaps with no consequences. Yeah. Okay. And very little comprehension on the audience's part. Next question this week comes from Zach Sinkinson. I was enjoying the fights this Saturday evening, and I noticed something. On all the fighters' shorts was a sponsor, P3. Could the UFC get any more insulting? They take all of the sponsors away from the sponsors. It means the fighters, yes, right? Yeah. And now they're putting sponsors on themselves and not paying the fighters more, question mark, exclamation point. I would like your opinion on this. Well, this, this is not the not the first time we've right. seen this. It's a relatively new development, though. This Saturday night was not the first time that they've had uh, a sponsor on the on the shorts, and I think maybe they put one on the on like tops. Women's tops might have had a sponsor on it at some point. I don't remember. Uh, it does seem like the kind of thing that we should get some more information on because they did say they were going to take sponsors off fighter apparel, basically because they didn't want the. Uh, the, the UFC's octagon to look uh, like a traveling circus. They wanted to, quote-unquote, clean it up in there, mm-hmm. have more of a professional and clean look. We've already called bullshit on the general state of the octagon, which at this point is just fucking plastered with sponsors yeah. anywhere you could possibly put them. Pretty prominent Hooters ad there during UFC 231. Clean and professional, yes. right? Uh, I think they're actually like coming up with new spots on the cage to put sponsorship logos. It seems like they've that they're like adding new real estate out there that's for sale. Now you're going to go ahead and start putting sponsor logos back on the tights. That seems like hot, like number one bullshit, frankly, uh, unless it turns out the fighters are in fact getting a cut, which nobody has said up to this point. Yeah. Don't you feel like the UFC would want to publicize that if that were the case after all the shit that they've taken over, not giving fighters cuts of other revenue, not, and the, you know, Signing the Reebok deal, which effectively killed the sponsorship market for MMA fighters. Don't you right. think they'd want everybody to know, hey, like we found a different, a new way to get fighters some money? Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, if we've learned anything up to this point, it's that you absolutely can't predict or comprehend what that company is going to do from one moment to the next. Uh, and didn't they say like really early on that some fighters like a Conor McGregor were going to be able to have one sponsor like Monster Energy drink yeah, Monster Energy on their shorts and those fighters were going to get a cut of that money? Right. Well, and but I think there was something in the language of the original apparel deal that like the UFC reserved the right to add one or two sponsors or something to the thing. But it does completely undercut the argument like, hey, the reason you can't have sponsors is we have this Reebok thing to clean up the look of the the sport, make it super professional, take it to the next level. How many times have we heard that one? And then oh, yeah, by the way, we're going to start adding in logos so that we get paid. But yet, would it surprise you if that turns out to be exactly what is happening here? No, it wouldn't surprise me, and it would strike me as a strategy from the beginning, right? Like, we're going to take away fighter sponsorships on fighter apparel, take away fighter uh, banners in the corners, and then once we think that everyone has forgotten about that, we will go ahead and implement our own sponsors on fighter apparel. You know who ought to be mad about that is Reebok. Because already, you signed this deal with the UFC, you took a lot of shit for the way that they were allocating the money, you had to work really hard to try to remind people that it wasn't that part wasn't your doing. You, you got 
criticized every time you roll out new fighter gear. And that, too, seems to be kind of finally calming down. Everybody kind of just accepting, okay, this is this is our lives now in right. the Reebok era. Right. And then the UFC is going to go ahead and then detract from your logo on the stuff by adding other people's logo that it gets paid for. And let's just say in Reebok's defense, it's stepped its game up a little it bit. It has. I mean, well, I mean, there was only one way it could go. It would have been hard to get any worse than where we started. Right. But at this point, there are a variety of colors available for fighters to actually wear in the cage, which can be, uh, you know, alternately referred to by John Anik as either Canadian or Polish red, as he did both times <laughs> on the broadcast this weekend when uh, OAM wore the red tights, he was out there in the Canadian red. And when Joanna Janjacek wore the red, she was out there in the Polish red. So, you know, you got a few more options for fighters now. Uh, they've been doing a lot in the sort of like fan apparel department with the, uh, just to bring up OAM, you know, the uh, yeah. the fanny pack stuffed with OAM gear. Uh, the There's a... a there's just some different some different shirts that are Sean O'Malley has right. like a tie dyed shirt available. There's well, just like playing to like seeing who the actual personalities are right. and customizing stuff for that. Doing a good job actually trying to play to the uh, personality strengths of the fighter. So I guess we got to give Reebok some credit in in its willingness to do that. But yeah, it would be interesting to sort of find out the behind the scenes story, what's going on with the with the sponsorships on on tights now. What's really going on? That's going to do it for this week's listener mail. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And if you somehow don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben Max Holloway returns to the cage for the first time in a little over a year and reaffirms his position as the UFC's men's featherweight champion in the most emphatic way possible, crafting a TKO stoppage of Brian Ortega between the fourth and fifth round after, for most of their 20 minutes together, just putting a beat down on T-City. As uh, everybody knows, Max Holloway came into this fight maybe with a, a shroud over him a little bit just in terms of his uh, his physical health. A uh, fight between these guys had been called off once before. He exits it looking like one of the most dominant featherweights in UFC history. I guess just to start, give me your overall impressions of what Max Holloway did out there and uh, whether or not you think that he is a hundred percent and perhaps concerns over his health were overblown. Yeah. Well, if he's out there taking some of those hard shots that he took against Brian Ortega and looking completely unconcerned, you got to think that that guy looks pretty healthy. He did look very healthy, made the weight without any problem. I mean, I understand. And I wouldn't want to dismiss concerns about a guy's health, especially when he's out there saying, you know what, I had this really scary health thing go on before my last scheduled fight, and I don't know why. The don't know why ought to concern anybody. But 
I don't know, you go out there and you look that good. To me, that was an effective reminder for everybody because I, maybe it was because people got a little too hot on Brian Ortega or maybe that they were that worried about whether Max Holloway was going to be 100%. You know, we talked about it like that's the big if is what kind of uh, how his health was going to be heading into this fight. But for him to come in there as an underdog and then when you're watching that fight, man, he is all over Brian Ortega and right away too. Just yeah. right in his face, never never gives you a moment to breathe. It's kind of Diaz-ish, but it's also a lot cleaner and smoother and more accurate striking, it seems, in the Diaz brothers. Yeah, and I think a lot of people who were in the know expected Max Holloway to uh, out-volume Brian Ortega. It's kind of like Max Holloway's game is that he throws so many strikes and so many different strikes that it's really, really hard to beat that guy round by round by round. It's really hard to get 10 nines over Max Holloway across the board. And of course, the thing that made Brian Ortega an interesting opponent and made Brian Ortega dangerous is like we know he has knockout power because we've seen him knock out guys like Frankie Edgar. And he also has that sort of home run submission ability to go out there and tap people out, even in positions where the other guy knows exactly what Brian Ortega is trying to do. Now, yeah, clearly, he has the ability to lose right up until he wins. Exactly. Uh, the And clearly, now that we've watched this fight, Ortega just didn't really get any opportunities to, uh, you know, put that submission skill on display against Holloway. There were only a couple of really brief ground exchanges here and Holloway managed to steer clear of them, frankly, uh, pretty easily. Uh, and the thing that made this a super impressive, like, ch like championship performance for Holloway to me was that Brian Ortega rebounded a little bit in the third round, started to feel a little bit more comfortable, started to feel a little bit more confident. The end of round three, maybe you think to yourself, okay, we got a little bit of a fight now. And in the very next round, Max Holloway comes out and just absolutely slams the door. And I believe called his shot, right? Yeah. He looked over at the UFC broadcast team at the start of round four and was pretty much like, okay, this is the round. And then he goes out there and just pummels Brian Ortega uh, into a doctor stoppage. Again, yet another situation where maybe a guy's a little too tough for his own good and he's got to, uh, you know, the doctor has to step in there once his left eye is pretty much completely pounded shut. Well, and that was one of the big takeaways for me from this fight was this is a fight where nobody comes out looking bad. Yeah. You know, Brian Ortega still fairly young, both in his career and just like in chronological age. I mean, so is Max Holloway's only 27, but he's been at it a long time and has a ton of top level experience. And Brian Ortega, we've still been watching him kind of climb up through the ranks. And here he runs into a guy who just has him beat on the feet and is throwing everything at him, just body, head, mixing it up. And he, at times, you can tell, can't even tell where the punches are coming from. But he never, like, looks defeated in his attitude. He's always firing back. He never get the sense that he has stopped believing that it's possible for him to win this fight. It took them coming in there and telling him, you know what, you've already been taking a lot of punishment and with your left eye completely closed, that's probably not going to get any better. And that was the right decision here. But that was a, a situation where somebody else was going to have to tell him that. He was not going to come to that conclusion on his own. Yeah, I saw some people online kind of talking about the brutal nature of this fight and how maybe some people were turned off by it, talking about how the uh, they thought the stoppage should have been a little bit sooner. I thought it was a really appropriately timed uh, referee doctor stoppage in that you know, Ortega was clearly game the whole time that he was out there. He never seemed like he was in tremendous physical danger. It never seemed like he got 
uh, terribly rocked by Max Holloway. There were some definitely some moments where it seemed like Holloway might get the stoppage and maybe Ortega was wobbled a little bit. Right, but um, through accumulation more than like one-shot damage. Right, and like he clearly was still in the fight right up to the moment that they stopped it before the final round. So like... I don't know, man. It's so hard to to second guess that kind of stuff, especially in a championship fight, in a main event fight, and in a fight where the guy who's on the receiving end of the lion's share of the damage still uh, clearly wants to be out there. So I thought stepping in at the time that they did step in when Ortega's eye really started to get closed uh, was the right move. I thought it was well-timed. Yeah. Well, and now, though, the question is for Max Holloway, what do you do with him? Yeah. Right? Because... He defended the featherweight title, and it seems like the UFC is going to push hard for him to go up to lightweight, either because of a genuine concern that he can't keep making the weight at featherweight without something bad happening to him, or just because you you feel like you want to see more cross-divisional super fights. I don't know. I mean, there's still some people to fight at featherweight. There's a ton of talent at featherweight. One thing about having a guy who's on a 13-fight winning streak is that by the time he gets to that point, he's going to have fought a lot of those guys, and that's definitely the case with Max Holloway. And if you have him go up to lightweight, I can name three guys off the top of my head where I'd be like, yes, I'd watch that. I'd watch that too. That one too. Like, There's a ton of options for him there. But I also feel like if he is telling you, hey, I can stay at featherweight, I want to stay here and really make my stamp on this division, how do you tell him no? Yeah, that's the thing, man. Like, I feel like it should sort of be up to Max Holloway. Um, if he wants to stay at 145 pounds and really leave his mark there, I feel like that would be an awesome thing to do. I've been saying for a long time, I think featherweight deserves to be one of the premier divisions in the UFC. There's tons of talent there. The fights are consistently good. Uh, you know, Max Holloway might be the best overall technician that we've ever seen at that weight in the octagon. Uh, and so I wouldn't argue with him staying there if, if that's what he wants to do. It's possible that the only drawback to having him do that is that, you know, he's already beat Jose Aldo twice. He just beat Brian Ortega. Frankie Edgar is always game and live and has already had a million UFC title shots. If, if, if I came up to you and said, Hey Ben, the old man, Frankie Edgar against Max Holloway, UFC 40, you would be like, what? Hashtag would watch, but I would imagine feel like I know how it's going to go. Right, and your hype level wouldn't be a 10 out of 10. Sure. Or at least mine wouldn't be. And then, you, you know, you start to look down the uh, featherweight rankings. Hanato Moicano, Chad Mendez, Jeremy Stevens, Cub Swanson, Mirsad Bektik, uh, Alexander Volkanovsky is down there. There are some good young fighters there who all need a couple more fights to kind of grow into their their potential, I think. If you wanted to book a super fight, and have Max Holloway go up to some weight, probably to the new 165-pound division that's tearing, tearing it up. It's the hot new, the, the new hotness. Yeah. Uh, that would be fine with me. Okay, but here's the thing. If he goes up to lightweight, who's he going to fight? Khabib? Because, goddammit, if you don't give me Khabib, turn, Tony Ferguson, I'm going to be mad. Yeah. Well, That's the fight that needs to happen. Dana White has said that's the fight that needs to happen. So then what? Do you have Max Holloway sitting around waiting to see what happens there? And then you'll decide if you want to have him fight for a lightweight title. Do you just book a just for the sheer fucking hell of it fight yep. against somebody else at lightweight? Well, I mean, I think it depends on what the Irishman is up to and whether or not he would be amenable to a rematch with Max Holloway. Uh, they just booked the American Cowboy, Donald Cerrone, against somebody else. So kind either, of an uninspired booking there. Yeah. So, you know, maybe 
that potential matchup with Conor McGregor that he was talking about or hinting at. You try to get a Diaz brother? Isn't going to happen. I mean, there's a lot of good options, frankly, for Max Holloway because he's a fun fighter and he's a guy who's a joy to watch. But wouldn't it seem a little bit uh, anticlimactic to take the featherweight champion, have him go up a division, but not to fight the champion, just to fight somebody who'd just be fun? And what are you going to tell us the stakes are? Like, hey, it'll be good. It'll just be good violence to watch. Like, I'll believe you. I believe that that will be true. But it does feel a little bit like you're letting some of the air out of the hype there. Uh, maybe a little bit, but I think it depends on the matchup. Like, if you could match him up with Conor McGregor, or you could match okay. him up with a Diaz brother, like, I feel like that, I would be good to go, depending on what that is. If you bring him up to lightweight and you're like, Max Holloway against Kevin Lee or yeah. Edson Barboza, then I would be like, why? Yeah, exactly, why? Uh, the Conor McGregor one is interesting, especially because we were talking about it on when our MMA Junkie staff, and I, was, I wrote a column about it today, where people are, you know, we get excited about Max Holloway after you see him in this great fight, which I'm going to go ahead and say this fight was the best featherweight title fight we've seen in the UFC. Yeah, I, that could, I, could I can't well name be. a better one. Uh, granted, it's not like the oldest division in the company, but I can't think of another fight where you say that was a better all-around fight for the featherweight title than this one. Um, who is the greatest featherweight in UFC history? See, I saw this floated around, and I think... You know, Mac, you can't take anything away from Max Holloway. I think he's fight by fight the best featherweight that we've seen in the UFC. But I feel like if you were talking about a lifetime achievement award, it's still got to be Jose Aldo. Because that dude was so good that when they created the UFC featherweight division, much like they did uh, for Ronda Rousey, they were just sort of like, this guy's the champ. Right. And then he held it down for nearly five years after that. Yeah. And even and he was the WEC champion for a couple of years before that. So, I mean, you just look at the then like the murderer's row of guys that he fought in that in that era. I still say Jose Aldo is the greatest of all time. But then if you're you know what that's going to what's going to happen after you say that the Conor McGregor fans going to be like 13 seconds, motherfucker. Yes. Max Holloway is going to say. I beat him twice. I beat that guy twice. I, I finished him twice, and and you right. still call him the greatest? Yeah, just because of the like his body of work. It's, okay. it's it's a different question than like who is the best 145 pound fighter right now. Right. It's a uh, it's just a different argument, and we've already on this show tossed out the Randy Couture, Chuck Liddell, uh, Rampage Jackson light heavyweight brain teaser, and so I would I think the same thing kind of stands here now. Max Holloway has only defended the title three times. Twice against the same guy. Twice against the same guy. It happens to be Jose Aldo, parenthetically. <laughs> uh, but, you know, if he's a, the champion for another two years, another three years, and, and, like, he's still fighting these hitters, taking out these killers, then, yeah, Max Holloway will easily be the greatest featherweight of all time. I just don't know if I'm ready to say it right now. And meanwhile, Conor McGregor is going to sit over there, no matter what you say, and he's going to be like, I beat Jose Aldo, who you say is the greatest featherweight of all time now. I beat Max Holloway, who you say could be the greatest featherweight with a few more wins. Where's the love? Man, Conor McGregor was a featherweight for like 10 minutes, it seems like. (laughs) And then as soon as he won the title, he was like, yeah, I'm not doing that weight cut anymore. And if he said 13 seconds, motherfucker, I'd be like, all right, let's do it again. (laughs) Conor, you and Max Holloway right now, what do you say? And he'd be like, I'm good. I'm good. I mean... 
I think that there's a very low probability you convince Conor McGregor to run it back with Max Holloway, but I would watch the shit out of it. All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben, and then we will move on to round number two. Ben, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week is about your boy Habib Nurmagomedov. Okay. He just had uh, his meeting with the Nevada State Athletic Commission pushed back another month uh, vis-a-vis sanctions related to his UFC 229 post-fight brawl which makes me say, are you fucking kidding me? Like, we're still doing this? We're still talking about this? Yes. When we're going to postpone it another month? And then we're just going to give him a six-month suspension. You know what would make me feel better about it, about putting it off another month? If I felt like the NAC was actually going to do shit. No. We all know they're not. not they're gonna just going to be like, let's see here. How long has it been? Four months? Retroactive four-month suspension. Yeah, and pay us a bunch of your money. Yes, and a fine that goes straight into the Nevada State Athletic Commission coffers. Are you fucking kidding me? Let's just get this shit done fucking and over with. Me? Yeah, stop playing. Like, you're really going to do something. Um, Chad, my, are you fucking kidding me? Jared Dana White was talking about things, possibilities in the welterweight division, including, who knows, maybe an interim title fight if we can't get Tyron Woodley back in there to fight. Um, reporters asking, you know, is Tyron Woodley healthy? Is it, Can he, he fight right now? Dana White's uh, response was, he never wants to fight. You want to be a world champion, but you don't want to fight anybody. That's a problem. Um, Tyrone Woodley defended that title in September. Okay. He, uh, he fought twice in 2017. He says, you know, he's got an injured hand now, uh, but then he'll be ready to fight uh, early part of 2019. Are you fucking kidding me? Why are we acting like this is the guy who you can't get to take a fight? Because I can think of somebody else who it's hard to convince him to get into the octagon, and yet the UFC doesn't seem to have any problem with that guy. You fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? That's gonna do it for round number one. We will be right back with round number two. Well, Chad, in the co-main event at UFC 231. I guess we can finally say we feel like we have a women's flyweight champion in the UFC. Your girl Chevy Chanks, Valentina Shevchenko, goes out there and kind of does what we suspected she would probably be able to do against Yuani and Jacek. Uh, Just a solid start-to-finish smart performance. She goes out there, looks to be at times a stronger fighter, uh, controls the the distance and the pace of the action, wins a pretty clear decision over Yuani and Jacek. And now we're going to do what? Yeah, we don't know. Okay. And like overall, as I've said a couple times on the show now, it, it, it continues to be the kind of thing where I see Valentina Shevchenko fight and I think to myself, I don't totally get it. Like she's she's really good. She's very solid. She is going to go out there and beat you by lopsided unanimous decision. But I don't totally understand why we have done like a year-long puppet master thing to put the 125-pound title on Valentina Shevchenko. Because we also know that she's going to lose some fights. Like she's given up a couple to Amanda Nunes already. And like the style that she fights in, it's not going to bowl anybody over. I don't know that it's going to be tremendously like highlight reel knockout driven. Well, if you give her somebody where she's like an eight to one favorite, she can go in there and beat true. Them up. You give her Priscilla Cachuera every time, and we'll we'll get a bunch of get a bunch of knockouts. But I'm just like 
now that we are left to to view in retrospect the whole rigmarole it took to put this thing together, and you know, it's not as though there were a lot of other contenders beating the door down to be in this 125 pound title fight. If you look, maybe you look at the lay of the land and you think Valentina Shevchenko is the standout best you can possibly do. But after watching this like unanimous decision over Joanna Jacek, I was kind of like, okay, that was that was fine. Sure, yeah, you know, I don't know what we're gonna do now. I don't know why it was so important that we did this particular matchup, but like, here we are. We do have a 125-pound champion. Seems to me there are two things you can do now. One is the aforementioned Jessica I fight. You can say, all right, Jessica I has got the winning streak. She's talking it up. Maybe she goes on Joe Rogan's podcast and reveals some stories about doing DMT, whatever. Uh, We roll with that. And if it turns out that she was actually not at the level to be challenging somebody like Valentina Shevchenko, well, then maybe you get a one-sided beatdown that will get people excited about Valentina Shevchenko. Or maybe she goes out there and she surprises some people, either in victory or defeat, whatever. The other option, the only other option, it seems to me, is you circle back and be like, hey, remember when we did an entire season of The Ultimate Fighter about this? about crowning a women's flyweight champion. And then it didn't really go that well. And we ended up with you know a couple fighters who didn't have a ton of experience and who went every time we tried to get somebody excited about them in a title fight, they said, who, how about we circle back, holler at uh, Cesaro Eubanks, Nico Montano, get the cast back together, basically, and try to do something there. Well, you could do a lot worse than to actually have a flyweight division, right? It, right. Would, it would feel a lot better if it felt like the women's 125-pound division uh, was a bubbling, melting pot of talent. But that's going to take some time, like no matter what, right? Yeah, I, I think so. And, then, you know, it would, I would love to see some, some flyweight contender fights. I think that would be awesome. It would, it would feel good, I think, if we could make it happen to see Nico Montano get another chance. And she never really officially lost the belt. She just like couldn't stay healthy enough to get in the cage uh, with Valentina Shevchenko. Now, I think, you know, that's probably another fight that Valentina Shevchenko wins. But then at least we would have a definitive answer about what should happen there. Uh, can we talk just a little bit about this actual fight? Sure. In that, you know, Joanna Jacek comes up from strawweight, puts on some some pounds of muscle, is ready to go, talks before the fight about how she's going to go back down to strawweight and uh, continue to to light up 115 pounders down there, which kind of made me feel like, but you're fighting for the title, right? Yeah, At yeah. 125 pounds? If you pounds? win that, kind of makes sense to stay there. As soon as Valentina Shevchenko got that trip takedown in the first round, I was like, uh-oh. Yeah. Here we go. Like, this this may play out just like we thought it would. I did think that it was like, and you get these sometimes, a weirdly one-sided, like, play-by-play call in favor of Valentina Shevchenko until you know, the last round and a half or whatever when uh, Joanna Jacek really started to turn it on. But I felt like the fight was probably a little bit closer than it was than it was per- portrayed to be, uh, even though I think Shevchenko's the rightful winner here. I didn't think uh, Jacek got outmatched quite as badly as I think it sounded like. Well, I don't they, they came out with the, like, the same number of significant strikes, and Shevchenko's were uh, harder, like they had more impact. But I still think, you know, Jacek afforded herself a little bit more competitively than maybe she was given credit for early on. It seemed to me that the big difference was that Yen Jacek's effective offense came in bursts mm-hmm. and it's just too sporadic. Like it, if you're 
taking a long view of the fight, it looked like Valentina Shevchenko was just in control. That time is yeah. frustratingly yeah. in control because you're thinking you could do a little bit more here. Oh, I agree. And I think like the one thing that she did really, really impressively was that she never let Joanna Jajic kind of get that snowball offense that we saw from her at strawweight where like she starts kind of stinging you here and there. And then before you know it, she's hitting you a thousand fucking times in the face every time. Right. Every time she gets the opportunity. Well, And to. that's because so many people would get, you know, they get that stung once or twice in the face. And then the next thing you know, you're standing there watching her. Yeah. And then you're in a whole lot of trouble. And you're right that she never let her get into that kind of mode. Yeah. So I don't know. What do you think? What is the best move for Valentina Shevchenko here as women's flyweight champion? Uh, and how does the UFC, I guess, essentially make her a thing? It seems like the UFC wants to make her a thing. It does seem that way. I don't, you know, I guess I wouldn't hate a Jessica I fight just because I feel like Jessica I will, she'll sell it one way or another. And that I don't feel like you have a ton of other options there. Uh, who I wonder more about what do you do now is Ioana and Jacek. Yeah. She's lost uh, three of her last four. The only victory is over Tisha Torres via unanimous decision. Now, two of those losses were Rose Namajunas, and one, obviously, is Valentina Shevchenko at flyweight. And I think if you wanted to say something uh, to, to you know pick up Joanna Jacek a little bit here, I think the main concern with her is that I didn't want to see her get lit up and dropped on the feet in a way that I found worrying. Like, I wanted to feel like Joanna Jacek could still take a shot and could still get in there and mix it up. And she actually handled Valentina Shevchenko's power advantage okay during this fight. There, were, there was never really a moment where you thought, you know, oh shit, this is going to get scary. And so, like, it made me feel like the end is not necessarily nigh for Joanna Jacek. She's got some some uh, rebuilding to do after this one and three performance here, uh, dating back to November of 2017. But, like, if she wants to go back down to flyweight and have some contender fights, I feel like that would be fine. If she wanted to try to stick around at straw weight, I'm not totally sure that's what I would want her to do if I were in charge of her career. But uh, I didn't feel like she's done, which I felt like was the sort of like worst case scenario for Yed yeah, yeah. coming into this fight. It does seem to me like whether she stays at straw weight or she goes back down or she stays at uh, flyweight or goes back down to straw weight. Either way, she probably ends up in a situation where you can beat 95% of the other fighters in the division and maybe not the champ ever. You are in a tough spot when you lose to the champ twice at strawweight and now have lost to the new champ at flyweight because they're not going to turn around and make a rematch for you. No, you need Shevchenko. some turnover at the top. So, uh, so yeah, she's got some, she's got some work to do there. Uh, but I, you know, again, coming out of this thing, I felt like she's still got some options. Exactly what those options are. I don't totally know, but she it didn't feel like the end of the road for her, which was maybe just sort of like the my own personal black moment. So I thought we might well, just yeah, be we don't, done. We don't want you to face that. All right, that's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, this Saturday night... Live and free from the Fiserv Forum in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, UFC on Fox 31, scheduled to be the Octagon's last show on the Fox network prior to jumping ship for ESPN. Now, Ben, what if I had told you 
when this whole thing started, that we would begin the Fox era with Cain Velasquez versus Junior Dos Santos for the UFC heavyweight title. Okay. And we would end it with Kevin Lee versus Al Iaquinta 2. What, what, what would you have thought? First I, of all, you would have been like, who are those dudes? But I would have wondered if some, some major changes had taken place. Let's say that. It doesn't necessarily necessarily feel like the trajectory was a straight line, does it? <laughs> now, obviously, hardcore fans are not going to argue with this Fox card. Uh, Kevin Lee versus Ally Quinta is a barn burner that we're all going to feel great about watching. You got Edson Barboza versus Dan Hooker, Rob Font against Sergio Pettis, and Jim Miller versus uh, Charles Oliveira. So good fights, man, all the way around on a, a four-fight network TV card that are generally a breeze to get through. Uh, but at the same time, Things played out differently, I think, than we thought that they might over the life of the UFC Fox deal. And now the Octagon treks over to ESPN altogether in a different place, I think, than where we thought we might be in the glorious early days of this relationship. So then the question is, how did we get here? Because you're right that when you start off with the heavyweight title fight and just the heavyweight title fight, you know that, and that was the way the UFC phrased it. Was this wasn't even really the start of the deal? It was just a little taste. It was a little extra, yeah, little bonus. We got them WMDs. That's right. Give them away for free first. Then you get hooked. Then you got to sign up for Fox Sports. One. Next thing you know, you're you're nodding off on the corner trying to get a, get a look at Fox Sports One. Uh, but it did seem like there has to be some kind of connection that you can make between what you're offering on Fox and what you're getting in terms of viewers. It can't just be, you can't just explain it all away in terms of like, well, audience uh, viewing habits changed during that time. That is true. Like audience viewing habits from the time of the beginning of the Fox deal to now have changed. Yes. And not in the way of people watching more network TV. Fact. But that can't be the entire explanation. It's not even... It, to me, it's a sliver of the explanation. What actually happened was an entire broad-based reformation of the landscape of the sport, right? Like when we hailed the arrival of the of the Fox deal, I don't think anyone really foresaw how much it would change what the UFC was asked to do and how it delivered on those promises. Because previous to that, the UFC only had really a couple of tiers of programming. You could watch it on Spike TV. You could watch it on pay-per-view. Like maybe if you were a total shit-eating wild man, you would go seek out Fuel TV or uh, you know NBC Sports or whatever it was, WEC, that kind of stuff. When it signed on to Fox, all of a sudden it had to provide pay-per-views. It had to provide uh, content for Fox Sports 1. It had to provide content for Fox Sports 2. It had to provide content for Fight Pass. Well, Fight Pass was its own decision there because there were right. a bunch of international shows sure. that Fox didn't want. That it was saying like, hey, how about that shit from Macau in the 2 o'clock in the morning? And Fox is like, no, man. I am in no way trying to suggest that the UFC didn't make its own bed here because it absolutely did. And some of those decisions like Fight Pass uh, were entirely of the UFC's making. But over the lifespan of that Fox deal, everything changed about how the sport is presented, about the uh, the rhythms of like when when fights would happen, how often they would happen, and ultimately how fight cards were put together and like what they meant. And we've done that for so long now, eight years over the life of this deal, 
that now you are so far down the path that I don't know that there's any way to to reverse course. And it doesn't seem like anybody wants to reverse course headed into this ESPN deal. So now you have, have the situation where this is just not only the new normal, but the long time normal and likely the normal for the foreseeable future. Well, and that's what you, when you talk about like a reshaping of the sport and what the UFC is trying to do, it does seem like the real shift is from being like, Hey, there's this big special event kind of thing that we want you to be excited about watching and anticipate watching and make sure you're in your damn seats to watch it to we're going to churn out content, yeah, hours and hours of content, and that will be our appeal. And maybe in that way, it was kind of a brilliant anticipation of where the media landscape was going by the UFC because they realized like as people start to move into streaming service kind of stuff – our big thing is going to be we have a ton of content that we can offer you. We can fill out your library instantly with a bunch of stuff. And that does seem to have had a lucrative effect for the UFC. Just doesn't seem to have had the effect of getting a bunch of fans to actually sit down there and watch the fights. Yeah. And like, in my opinion, it's kind of sad because once again, we have like the major league baseball, uh, example or or comparison where you would have a small market team that figures out that it can make a lot more money by offering a a subpar product. Essentially, in my opinion, what the UFC has done is figured out that it can make a lot more money if it is just offering up fight nights every single weekend with six fights on them uh, that have to be staffed with advertising. And it doesn't matter who's on those cards. There's no linear storyline storytelling inside uh, divisions it's an interim title every five minutes. You don't know who the number one contender is. There has to be a sense, whether they will acknowledge it or not internally, that they are offering a much different and ultimately less fan-friendly uh, product in exchange for making that paper. And when you think about where we started, when we started with a showcase of one fight for the UFC Heavyweight Championship between the two guys who were at the time the two best heavyweights in the world, Cain Velasquez and Junior Dos Santos. And it was like, okay, the thing we are doing is special attractions that everyone will want to make an appointment to come see. Now the last Fox deal is Kevin Lee against Ally Quinta in a, on a fight card that you are not going to hear that much about until it actually happens. It makes you realize like how different the thing that they are offering up on Fox is now than when they started. Yeah, well, and also... You know, if you compare ratings for the last year or so of UFC on Fox events with the ratings you used to get on Spike TV for pay-per-view prelims and, like, the huge difference in, like, the availability of how many people were able to even just have access to Spike TV back then versus how many people have access to Fox, you definitely see that that change has taken place. It also, though, does seem, especially toward the end of the Fox deal, like, However hard the UFC was trying before, it tried a lot less hard as we got close to the end. I mean, it seems like at some point there example. was a, a tipping point, right? Where somebody decided, fuck it, like we're out of here. Yeah. We have senioritis. Mm-hmm. Let's just get this thing. Let's just get this this deal done and get out of here and do something else. In terms of moving to ESPN, Ben, paint me a rosy picture. Like what? If I'm the shit-eating wild man who's trying to convince myself and my family that that this is like that I should remain fully committed and put all of the hours in to watch this, like what are the positives here? Oh boy, you're gonna you're gonna put me in that corner, huh? Well, 
It's a long pause. This is a long pause. It's a thoughtful pause. I mean, you get into a bigger platform, right? You do. You do. It's it's easier to watch. It's easier to find. It's going to be on my basic cable package. Okay. Some of them will be on your basic cable package. Sometimes you might have to flip from a streaming service to your basic cable package back to a streaming service. I don't know if that's going to be super easy for you. Um, Maybe that it will be treated more like a real sport if it's on ESPN, both by the people like the larger tastemakers at ESPN, but also by the general mainstream sporting public. But I don't know, man. I think you're just going to see a lot of the same approach. The volume approach is just churning out stuff. Yeah. While the UFC keeps making you pay premium prices for anything it thinks is halfway good. Yeah. I told you that I signed up for ESPN Plus in September because I wanted to watch my beloved Montana Grizzlies play uh, the Leathernecks of Western Illinois. Couldn't figure out how to unsubscribe. Still have it. Have not been able to unsubscribe yet. So It's like the opposite of our newsletter. Yeah. Buyer beware on that, I guess. Uh, I mean, there's a chance that there's an injection of enthusiasm and energy crossing over to the worldwide leader in sports, right? That we come to this new deal uh, with fresh ideas and, uh, like I said, a redoubling of energy and that the, the larger platform brings in more eyeballs. And I think maybe the outside chance that ESPN can lean on the UFC a little bit more than Fox could uh, in terms of getting top top content or top talent on televised events. Uh, okay, but here's my question, though, is then where does it come from? Because, like, look at the example of the this first one, the, the UFC uh, fight night, that's UFC on ESPN plus one. God, we got to come up with a better name for well, that. Not, and not only that, but it's also UFC fight night 143. So UFC on ESPN plus one or UFC fight night 143. And the UFC has been trying to fill out that fight card Strange how after tickets went on sale for, what was it, UFC 233, the, the pay-per-view, or, yeah, 233, the pay-per-view that was going to be Cejudo Dillashaw in Anaheim, after they went on sale, then the UFC moved the that fight, that title fight, over to the UFC on ESPN+. Plus. Yeah. So it's like... Maybe that is what it is. Like, okay, we're starting a new deal with a new t- new broadcast partner. We want to make a good impression right out the gate. Maybe they're leaning on you a little bit to give us some good fights, give us a title fight. You do it, but in order to do it, you had to take it from somewhere else. And you're already stretched so thin that there's there's not like an endless well of really good fights that you can pull from. Yeah, as I look at this first ESPN Plus fight card, it looks a lot like early UFC on Fox fight cards, to be honest with you. you got a flyweight title fight, uh, which is champion versus champion Henry Cejudo against TJ Dillashaw. you got Paige Van Zant on there. <laughs> there you go. So basically running it back. If uh, only Sage Northcutt were still around. You know, depending on what happens to this uh, Greg Hardy fight, you may or may not have a heavyweight banger on the fight fight card. Uh, and then you got the Cowboy, Donald Cerrone, potentially taking on Alexander Hernandez. So check, check, check. So it's like, I don't know, man. It looks a lot like the, the what the original blueprint was to try to make uh, waves on the Fox network, which is interesting when you think about that it. That is interesting. All right, let's do Just Saying Stuff, Ben, and then we will get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your Just Saying Stuff? Chad, you know what we forgot to do? Well, if we forgot, then no, I don't know. You know how many patrons we're sitting at right now? Oh, 
851. 851, all right. That means we have crested 850, though. We are closing in on 900, which will trigger the Affliction Day of Reckoning drinking challenge. Yeah, so it's a downhill slide from here. That's right. But I mean, since the, we're not the hard there, work is done. We're not there yet. That means we forgot to do a personal quote from Channing Tatum. We, we were almost out, you guys. We almost got out. This is in reference to him performing alongside Mark Ruffalo in the 2014 film Foxcatcher. Oh, okay. It's a good film. It is a good film, especially of interest to MMA fans since it deals in the lives of uh, Olympic wrestlers. Quote, Mark and I went through the grinder together. It was pretty, pretty easy to bond when you're bleeding together. Oh, all right. Yeah. Could give you something to think about. Just saying. Well, Ben, this week, I'm just saying, we just talked a little bit about UFC 233 still being TBA versus TBA mm-hmm. in the main event slot. Did you also notice this week uh, how often it seems like fighters now are reporting back that they either spoke with or texted with Dana White immediately following the last UFC to try to get a spot locked up for themselves? Jessica I told Ariel Helwani that she had already talked to them about getting the women's flyweight title fight. Uh, Frankie Edgar said he'd already talked to Dana White about being next up for Max Holloway. I guess I'm just saying it sure looks like there's a lot of chaos going on and like the people know that. That Frankie Edgar is like, well, if I'm going to get this men's featherweight title shot, I got to be the first guy to text Dana White on Saturday night at 12.02 a.m. and be like, hey, man, how about me? How about you put me in there? What you doing? Put that in your notes. Set a reminder on your phone that it's Frankie Edgar versus Max Holloway next. I don't know, man. I'm just saying it seems like uh, it seems like the system is broken down. Are you just saying chaos is a ladder? Chaos is a ladder. There you go. Just saying. Well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week, probably to look back on the last UFC on Fox card and to look ahead to UFC 232, the big rematch between John Jones and Alexander Gustafson, as well as Chris Cyborg, Justino versus Amanda Nunes. Uh, that's actually a good fight card. Now, that lo- now that I'm looking at it, it's a banger. You got Carlos Conant versus Michael Chiesa. Ain't nobody going to complain about that. Nope. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. Do you think when you text Dana White to try to slide in there, do you have to first act like you're just being like, hey, man, what's up? Like it's wonder like, what you up to. It's like doing a weed deal in Missoula. <laughs> You'll be like, hey, man, how about I come hang out at your house for a half hour? Eventually you sell me some weed and then I go home. I bet Dana White gets more straight to the point. He's got stuff to do. Do you think that that's what if you try to text him and be like, hey, man, just wonder what you're up to. He'd be like, what do you want, Frankie? Exactly. You're lucky if he's not new phone who this. I think you're lucky if he, if he asks, what could I do for you, Mr. Edgar? <laughs> Nothing, man. Just wanted to meet up at the club. Yeah, just hang out for a while. I haven't heard from you in a while. Go buy a couple drinks. What's he doing all right? <laughs>